Episode 67 at Winning at Work. Welcome in. I'm Tony Moore. I am your host. This episode is sponsored by Join Us Search Group. We are a national food and beverage executive search firm. We specialize in identifying and helping you hire sales, marketing, innovations, and operational leaders. Today, I'm joined by Stephanie Adkinson, and Stephanie has just been awarded by Progressive Grocer Top Women in Grocery 2021. What an honor. She is the expert in brand building. Her background spans Johnson & Johnson, well-known, famous consumer products company. She ran the $1.5 billion sales brand for Kraft Macaroni and Cheese at Kraft Foods Group. And she is currently the Vice President of Sales East Beef Division for JBS USA. Today, she's going to teach us the four pillars to follow when building a brand. She's got some interesting trends in beef, going to show us uh, how to select a broker to represent your product. And finally, when we get into our talent discussion, she's got two great interview questions and strategies. One of them includes how to quickly spot if the candidate you really want to hire actually doesn't have the expertise that you need. It's a quick way to suss that out, can save you a lot of time. Sit back, enjoy, get your pen, maybe grab a beer or a wine, whatever is your pleasure, and enjoy this great interview with Stephanie Atkinson. Well, Stephanie Atkinson, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning, Tony. Pleasure to be here. I think you're going to really test my theory that I am a early bird. It is. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see how you do, Tony. It's uh, I, I am early. I am usually like a 4.30 a.m. riser, so it's mid-afternoon for me. Exactly. You said, hey, let's do this thing at 6 a.m. And I said, well, wait a minute now. I'm not that early. <laughs> but I guess when you are, you know, one of the the top women in grocery, you know, you just, you never sleep, Right. I get my sleep. I just go to bed early and um, I I do my best work uninterrupted and first thing in the morning. So I always schedule just that time to get up and work on strategy and the things that are really going to move the needle because once the day starts and the customer calls and the team calls, it's at that point really about problem solving. So so that's one of your your personal philosophies then is is get yourself completely organized and focused on the absolute biggest things you have to accomplish today or the week? Yes. Do that first thing in the morning at the beginning of the week. Just out of curiosity, how far out do you look when you go through your own personal planner? Is that a weekly, monthly thing or just depends on what's happening? Yeah, I would say, you know, from a business standpoint, I'll look at it from a quarterly basis, what we want to get done each quarter and then break it down really into weekly. So I know like, what are the three things I need to get done for the week, for the day and just work backwards that way. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard different strategies around that. I was just kind of curious since you brought that up. Well, Stephanie, you are our brand expert today. And I know you've worked mainly on the manufacturer side. And for people who 
don't know the full breadth of your background, we're going to walk through that a little bit. But you worked with Johnson and Johnson, obviously one of the most well-known you know, consumer product brands in the world, Kraft Foods Group, and of course now Vice President of Sales for the East Division for Beef with JBS USA, and. You and I were talking a little bit offline about the complexities of managing a brand, and that really jumps off the page at me about your background is how you've successfully managed these brands. And I was hoping you could give us a mini masterclass today. How do you go about managing a, a brand? Sure, Tony. So, um, gosh, I'd break it down, I guess, into three parts. Um, one would be what's your brand story um, the second part would be about um, the execution piece of it. And the third, um, really just fine-tuning that ongoing um, strategy for your brand. So when I think about a brand story, um, it really is about fulfilling some type of consumer need, whether it be athletic, it could be something for your pet, um, food, for example, which I'm very familiar with. So I look at uh, what kind of need gets fulfilled um, for the consumer. And then your brand has to have a personality and an identity. So what is that? What is it going to provide for that consumer? Is it, um, you know, is it comfort? Is it um, success in an area? When I think about, um, you know, one of the brands that I just has been so much fun for me over the throughout the course of my of, uh, my career is Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Everybody knows that brand. We all grew up with it. And when I was at Kraft working with this, with the marketing team, the customer service team, uh, gosh, every aspect of it, financial supply chain, you know, really looking at what's going to be the personality and identity of, of Kraft macaroni and cheese. And there's a variety of mac and cheese out there, but um, in Kraft, the staple is the blue box. And we all grew up with it. You probably ate that as a kid growing up and, you know, had it as a family, maybe you still even eat it now. Stephanie, it's in our cupboard. I, I have a 20 year old that still has not, well, doesn't, it's not like she has to give it up. She, she won't. I mean, this is part of what we do, you know, yeah. dad cooking and he just throws on some, some mac and cheese to go with. Yep. And I love that you're sharing that about a 20 year old and um, just be, be your daughter, because when we looked at this brand, um, it really became a kid's brand. It kind of stuck in that um, in that messaging is that you serve it for your to your kids. And that is true in the fact of, you know, as a parent, there's a few few items that your kids will eat consistently and you it's a matter of convenience for the mom. The child loves it. And however, adults they love it too and they always take a bite out of it. So our campaign um, back when I was with Kraft was, you know, you love it. And we really targeted, um, not just the, you know, the kids, but the parents, because the parents were still eating it. The college kids, as you mentioned, were just eating it, young adults and the feeling or the personality identity of the brand was that nostalgic feeling. Um, it was a, you know, it was guaranteed through the years you were going to get the same thing that you loved as a kid. You can eat it as an adult. It's comfort and really giving adults permission to go back to that um, really hero of their childhood and feeling comfortable eating it as an adult. So I think that became our clarifying message, um, you know, that you know you love it too, as our campaign. So that's interesting. So you, that became the 
the focus point, right? You got that one tagline that just totally resonated with everybody. And that became your, your, your battle cry. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it is definitely a comfort food. And it's interesting you bring up the, the concept of nostalgia because there's a big, big push right now with nostalgia brands. And I hadn't really thought of the Kraft Macaroni and Cheese as a nostalgia brand. But come to think of it, though, anything that takes you back to your childhood, I guess you could argue, right, fits that category. Absolutely. I mean, you have that personal connection. And when someone has a, a consumer has that personal connection to the brand, it sticks. I mean, the brand has to change over time, as we, as we just mentioned here. It has to stay relevant. But, uh, you know, through the pandemic, that's what we saw, you know, through, I mean, we're, I guess we're still in the pandemic, but um, with COVID, people went back to tried and true, things that they grew up with. Um, we saw a lot of cooking from scratch, people, um, you know, making meals that their mom did and going back to recipes. I mean, you talk about the baking and the category. It just uh, saw phenomenal growth through it. So really tapping into that personal connection with consumers is what's really hot right now too. Coming from the sales side, how much input, how much do they want from the sales team to help identify or clarify that? Or was it already pretty much there and you just kind of, your team just took it and, and ran with it? No, um, I think it's really important to have your cross-functional team when you're developing a brand um, because um, you think about all the different aspects that go into making it a successful execution is a huge part of it. And from a sales side of it, we know what the consumers or our customers are asking for. So, you know, we have the consumer, the end user who will buy the product and, you know, they vote with their dollars on what, what will make it or won't make it in the marketplace. But our customers are a huge part of that execution. And we have to sell it to our customers before it ever gets to into the hands of the consumer. So um, at any company I've been to, sales has always had a seat at the table. And our customers, they know the consumers too, and they know the stores, and they know um, what, when, where it will sell in the store. So um, having representation from the sales via the customer is extremely important. Well, I want to bring in something because you've mentioned the store a few times, and I guess we should congratulate you on being named um, a senior executive, uh, top women in grocery 2021 by Progressive Grocer. I guess that's, that's uh, another feather in the cap for you. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> that's pretty exciting. It is exciting. Um, yeah, it's got to be because it's, you know, you're getting recognized. Your team is being recognized for the work they're doing. But because this is from uh, Progressive Grocer, Grocer and you're selling into, in many cases, into the grocery stores, when you're managing a brand, how do you coordinate that with the distribution partners or the brokers? How does that kind of come together then to, then to into managing those uh, grocery store relationships? Sure. Um, you know, just kind of, you know, I've had many different networks throughout the years, whether it be direct selling force or the broker network. Um, you know, our first step is really um, working with the, um, you know, the senior leadership or the category managers at the customer account to um, share the, the complete sell story. We always call it like a 360 degree strategy. 
um, selling that in that way. And then, um, but gosh, um, are either broker partners, because many people do have brokers that represent their brands, especially, um, you know, startup companies and some of the um, smaller entrepreneurial type companies. But uh, just working with those guys, um, those men and women, um, making sure that they understand your product, understand where it sets in the store, what what role it's going to play in the store or to the, um, the eating occasion and arming our execution partners with every bit of information so that when they are in front of our customers, they can make sure that it's, that it's communicated to the customer how it's going to meet their needs. You mentioned smaller or startup or entrepreneurial firms that do go with a broker to get that exposure and get access to the sales force. From your experience working with brokers, would you have any advice for a smaller firm that's trying to win a, a deal with a broker? Because I imagine they have a lot of choices, right? So it's there's a whole other sales strategy, I imagine, just to acquire a broker. Yeah, I think um, from a broker standpoint, um, someone's looking, I would say that make sure that your strategies align with that broker. Um, you know, and vice versa, make sure that both strategies are aligned, that the job can get done, that neither one have too much on their plate. I know sometimes we can overload either, um, you know, the broker with two, if they have, if they're representing a number of businesses, um, just making sure that you have space in that and that they're going to have the time to do it. Um, if you have a specialty type item or say if you're competing in the health and wellness category, you're going with a more conventional type um, center store broker that may not be the best fit. So you might want to go with a specialty broker who's an expert in that area. Um, one that even the customer aligns with. So we have some uh, larger retailers who have either favorite or uh, contracted out brokers that they partner with making sure that you align with those so that you get the best representation and execution from a partnership standpoint. But just understanding and getting to know the people, um, I think sometimes the relationship with the broker can be perceived as something that um, is not really like a team member. And I know that every time I've worked with a broker, they have to be a part of your team. You've got to bring them in through the whole process. So it's not that the manufacturer, the entrepreneur, the small company has all the answers. The brokers have really deep relationships with the retailers and uh, bringing them along in the journey with you and do everything with your broker partner that you would with a, a sales team or one of your employees really makes them feel and become part of your team. And it becomes a true partnership versus a, just a contract or a transaction with another company. That's great advice. Align with them, choose the right broker that fits the, you know, their strategy and just don't leave them behind or expect them to, you know, turnkey, go off and, and do the work to, you know, keep them, Absolutely. keep them, yeah, keep them close to the vest with everything that, that, that you're doing and thinking. So yeah. as you kind of walk us through this, this brand story, what, what are the next steps? What else should someone be doing as they manage this brand? Sure. I think a huge part of it is execution. I think sometimes that's where, um, 
where projects fail or things fall flat. You can have a fantastic strategy around your brand, but if you cannot execute it or have the right people on board to help execute it, um, you know, failure comes at that at, at that part of the process. Um, we always look at uh, like a 360 degree strategy. There's so much um, other than just getting a product on the shelf. And quite frankly, like our world has changed um, over the last 20 years. You think about, you know, the company that really had the most impact in changing that is Amazon. And uh, uh, it is really how you sell your your brand across every app, you know, facet of it. You've got the omni-channel piece of it. So setting up your online and your brick and mortar, um, part of your selling strategy. You think about in-store, on-shelf, your placement, merchandising, your packaging. I mean, people only look at it at the shelf. They look at the grocery shelf. When I say people, the consumer for three seconds. So you've really got to share your messaging inside and outside of the store and make sure your packaging really pops on the shelf. Um, wow, three seconds. Three seconds is what the average consumer will look at something. Now, if you go to a Whole Foods or some other type of specialty health and wellness, you have consumers who are spending a little bit more time looking at ingredients and um, claims on the items. Um, but if you're in a conventional grocery store, that consumer spends only three, sec- three seconds at the shelf looking. So they find what they want and they just grab it. They put do. it in the cart. Yes. Yes. And, and you know, they, they've already looked at your product. Um, I don't, you know, whether if you're going to go to a venue or you're going to look at a new product, you've done your research before you've gone to the store. So just know that too. I mean, people are, the selling starts way before they get online at Amazon or, um, or go into a grocery store or, or to a venue or a new your shopping experience, if you're going to go check out a retail store or a new church, you are checking everything out online first. And that online, and that's part of your digital strategy, the online piece of it. You've got to have the smartphone piece of it and um, your website. So we know, for example, the um, seniors and the baby boomers are really going to the websites, but everybody else beyond that, especially our, our Gen Z consumers, They've had phones in their hands since they were 10 years old. So they're doing all of their shopping on their smartphones and and they've done all their research before they make purchases. Interesting. So you've kind of broken down this 360 degree strategy by the consumer in some ways as well and how they're going to be interacting. Absolutely. I mean, you can no longer, um, you know, I think about when Kroger first launched their, their um, uh, online platform and they were one of the, the first in the grocery to, to, to really go and do it well, it was more web-based and they evolved, you know, they grew their digital marketing team and they evolved to like, Hey, we've got our web-based and we have our app and you're, you truly, when I say app, you're talking about your phone, your tablet, you really have to be able to shop from an app because mom's not bringing her computer, her laptop, to the soccer game or <laughs> right. Or, you know, on it, when she's on an airplane, um, getting, you know, flying between cities and, and she's building her grocery or, or he's building his grocery basket. They're doing it through their smartphone and through an app. So you've really got to be up on that as well. And you have to be relevant where people shop. It's, 
it's interesting because when you look at Instagram now, we, you know, we shop through pictures, not a lot of words. You see an outfit or, you know, Target might have a room um, Wayfair on, on that digital campaign through Instagram. And you're just able to click on that picture. If you're following, say, for example, Target, I should be able to click on that picture and add it to my basket. So I, I, there's no reason for me to necessarily have to run out to the store and, and, and look at it. I, I, I get a picture, this visual, and I can see it. And, oh, yeah, I like how that sits on that table. And I can just click on it and add it to my cart right away. So food really plays into the world of Instagram and making things Instagrammable. And this is really your area of expertise in sales within food now at JBS with um, beef and pork and depending on what part of the world, um, lamb, if I'm remembering correctly. So what, what, where is your expertise now? What is it that you're building out within your, within your division within JBS? Sure. Yeah, I'm on the beef division, and my primary role is to lead a team calling on retail customers. So I've, um, I've got a team all across the East Coast, and it is really helping our customers um, in their meat strategy, helping them develop their meat strategy and to sell more beef. So that's my my day to day, and um, you know we want to be a total solution provider for our customers. We are the number number one beef producer in the U.S., and we have a number of brands. Some that you know you've heard of: Swift Brand, eighteen fifty five, um, Five Star, Grass Run Farm. So um, you know we sell everything from a commodity beef to upper two thirds choice, like our eighteen fifty five, um, Five Star. Um, we have grass, domestic grass-fed and grass-finished. Domestic is very important to the consumer right now. We have that through our grass-run farm. So it's really providing solutions to our customers that the consumer is looking for. So what are some of the, the trends or what's the data saying that, that customers want when they're purchasing beef right now? Yeah, I think um, one of it is, you know, c- consumers are looking for an upscale experience. Over the last year, they've um, been forced to cook. So, um, you know, from a digital or cooking standpoint, we would not have been able to advance that with the population without really what had happened over this last year. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see how people have it experimented with um, fresh meat and beef, trying new cuts. Um, We saw a huge increase in smokers and grills being purchased as people, um, you know, were were at home and say, hey, I don't want to have the same thing that I have every week. Um, So, you know, just like briskets, um, you know, people learning how to cook that or a a culotte muscle. It's, It's just things that um, well, I've not heard of that one. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm yeah, pretty good on, on the over. grill. Yeah. What is it, that? It's, it's a culotte. It's, it's a, um, a, a very flavorful cut of meat that, you know, is outside of just the ground beef and, you know, steaks that people are, are accustomed to getting uh, ground beef um, is really like a point of entry into the beef category. And it's so versatile. We saw a gosh, in, in you know, at times it was upwards of 54% increase in sales on ground beef um, just because it is so versatile and people are comfortable cooking with that. But 
um, even even premium cuts of, of steaks, the, the upper two-third choice, you know, probably part of select choice and prime, which is the, the grading, you know, people didn't go out to restaurants, so they wanted to create that in-home restaurant experience. Um, so they would cook finer cuts of steaks and they're using their new equipment at home. So just in general, um, fresh meat was a huge winner. Um, you know, people shop the perimeter of the store now. They want fresh. And uh, yeah, it was almost, I think, uh, ending 2020, beef was up uh, almost 24% and the whole meat case was up 20%. The, you know, I thought the supply chain bounced back pretty quick. Honestly, there were times when I was really expecting to see barren, you know, um, chicken, pork, beef cases. But I'm trying to think. I don't remember it getting hit that hard. I think the the prognosticators were saying it was going to be much worse. Um, but it's certainly back now. Everything is completely full, and there's no restrictions on anything I can buy. But I'm in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, I would say it depends on where you are in the country. I guess it does. It, it does. And, you know, in different parts of the country, you know, they like different cuts of meat and proteins. So, uh, but it has, you know, we saw a surge at the beginning, just like, you know, it didn't last as long as like toilet paper and paper towels and cleaning goods. But people did. They bought, you know, it was hard to find a freezer because everybody, you know, they were stocking up on everything. So people bought freezers and they, they filled them up with meat and, it was a couple of weeks of where it was, um, you know, supply got thin. Uh, well, not necessarily supply, but uh, what was on the shelf became um, thin as well. But uh, yeah, the industry is back up and running and running strong right now. I would say so. And you mentioned um, earlier that, you know, people were being forced to do more cooking. I would say for me personally, I don't feel forced. I, I mean, I'm one of those that I, I do like to cook. So it is fun to go into the, the, the meat aisle and just look at all the different choices that I have. But, but your, to your point though, a lot of my neighbors, <clears throat> they have been buying, you know, smokers and all kinds of things. Cause I can, <laughs> on the weekend, I'm like, Hey, I've noticed you've got a green egg over there now. You know, you're Absolutely. definitely, it is definitely picked up. And the nice thing about being in a neighborhood is you have to have someone there to sample it. <laughs> That's right. You need to see, I am what, I'm what they call the, the quality checker. So I do random quality check audits. And, um, <laughs> that's how I, uh, that's how I can help my, help my friends. You see air quotes, help. I love that. Yeah. You're being an asset to your community. I'm here yeah. for them. <laughs> I'm really here for them because if it's not cooked right, we need to, you know, put a little more bar- a little more barbecue sauce on it. Um, oh my goodness! So one of the other trends that I have seen, and I've had some other people on the podcast, we're seeing this, you know, rise in in plant based foods, and some of these companies are trying to make, you know, substitutes for meat. I imagine you guys in the in, in the beef world have have seen this trend, but. Uh, given the size of the beef industry, it seems like you guys are just chugging right along. We are. I mean, we, we are, you know, the number one beef producer in the U.S., number two pork, number two poultry. Um, but we also own a plant-based company called Plantera Foods. And, um, you know, we're, we, uh, we, we have a responsibility to feed the U.S., feed the, feed the world at JBS. And um, there is a... 
you know, there's a place for all of this um, with the consumer. So we have some consumers that are in and out. They just want a little bit of plant-based, you know, I want to mix it in with my beef, pork, or poultry purchases. And then we have those who are, you know, I want my main source of protein to come from the plant base. So, you know, we offer that as well. Well, it's smart to be a diversified brand. We know that from just general business. So that seems like a, a, a wise choice. Now, uh, as head of sales here for the East, any particular maybe HR or kind of talent related insights you might have for another VP of sales who's managing salespeople? Because you've obviously been very successful yourself um, running large teams. Any any wisdom there for people who are, are running sales teams? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that's important for me, you had mentioned diversifying your portfolio. I believe that to be the same for a team and a group of people. Um, diversity of thought is good for business. So I've got folks on my team recently who have um, who have no meat experience, but they've got fantastic retail experience and direct store experience. So they can bring their expertise to our team. Now, of course, I, you know they have to have the capacity to learn meat and learn it quickly. And, um, but that, that type of, um, just diversity has been really good for the team. I've got folks who are, you know, grew up, um, in a store as a meat cutter and they bring tons of experience to our team and they can help bring up and, and lead the folks that don't have that meat experience. We recently hired, um, someone who she has a wealth of, uh, experience in meat from a brand perspective, but she's new to the sales aspect of it. So just being real, well-rounded, I don't want people, um, you know, just to be like me or have, um, you know, one type of experience. Um, because then I, I always say like, you get into this, um, boat and we're all kind of rowing on the same side. So we go in circles. I think we need that. <laughs> that's a good visual. It is. It's like, well, we don't want it. We're just going to be like, we're not going anywhere. Men. Yeah. So just to diversify that, um, you know, take a chance, um, on that to, to be different, um, I think sometimes that's a scary place to be. And we tend to, you know, I've done that in my career too. You tend to hire a lot of people like yourself, but you know, it's that same thing. You just, you stay where you are so we can really help and challenge each other. And it really, I feel like it empowers the people that you hire. So if each person can lead something and teach the rest of the team, some aspect of selling or the business or about customer or consumer experiences. It just, um, it helps them in their development and helps, you know, give your team a, a, a purpose. And we all like the attaboy and being an expert in something because um, we are stretched so thin. It's, you can't know everything. Um, so I think it's good for, good for the overall business. And I think it helps develop in a high performing team. Are there a few qualities or traits that you I look to identify in your sales team? And I know there's different levels, right? You have more, you can have entry level versus your more experienced managers and directors. But let's talk about just that that mid career, that you know, five year plus person who's you know had some sales experience. What do you? What basic 
skills traits do you have to hone in on? And then you can overlook the fact that maybe they don't have beef. Yeah. I think um, understanding the customer, um, you know, the aptitude to be able to do that, um, understanding what needs are, being able to look towards the future and anticipation of what might be changing. Listening is huge. I can tell you how many times that um, we go in to talk to a customer and we have all the answers when really we don't. If we don't listen and ask questions and allow them to talk, we really sell ourselves short. And it's just really hard to build a partnership. And then, you know, we might be coming in with something that they don't really need because we're not meeting their need and their consumer's need um, at that customer. Um, I know this is kind of a, a granular question, but you talk about the need for them to listen and maybe even think ahead or, or see ahead. It, it makes sense that you want your sales team to do that and you can identify the people when they're working for you, when they're doing those skills and traits. But when you're interviewing someone, that's hard, isn't it, though, when you're just sitting across the table and you're trying to determine, can this person learn quickly? Can they look ahead? Can they see what the customer's needs are going to be in the future? Do you have a uh, a style, a way in which you can get that information out without being too telegraphed? Because it's tough. It is tough. And I think um, I ask um, situation-based questions. Mm -hmm, behavioral then, type stuff. Yep. Yes. And ask them to navigate through that because I can't tell you how many times, and I'll know within, I mean, five minutes of an interview and I've cut them even short at like 10 minutes when you've had an hour scheduled. So off. more than three seconds. So they get more than they the get grocery. More, yes, okay. They get more than the time that they're looking All right, at. All right, folks, she's going to give you a little more than. <laughs> but is it, but if it's, if, if they answer, I would do this, or this is how I would handle something, then they either haven't had that experience or they don't know how to navigate it. I'll be like, no, no, give me an example of something that you actually did. And and if they can't get there, um, then they're just not the right fit for the team, you know, for my team, I guess. Yeah, so what? You, that's great advice. And I hope people are paying attention to what you just said because the the interviewer just spoke in a hypothetical. Yes. And that's what you're looking for. I'm looking for not hypotheticals. Correct. Correct. And if you really want to put some money on the spot and how they might think and if they're going. Oh, one thing I'll, I'll ask people is, well, tell me something about JBS. What would you change? What would you change about the beef? You know, if you've got, because hopefully they've been to a store, they have researched a company, but tell me, tell me something that we can do to improve. So you want to talk about someone who's going to show a little bit of courage in an interview, they'll, they'll tell you something that's wrong with your company because you've asked that question. You know, of course, you're not going to go in and say, hey, oh, this is, you know, you're not doing things right. So let me come in and change everything. But if you can get someone to, you know, pull that out of them and get them to tell you what you could be doing differently or better or something that you're missing, I think that shows a lot of courage. That's forward thinking. That's someone who's going to speak up and tell you the truth on your team. They're going to make you better if you can pull that out as well. 
I love that interviewing philosophy. I do think it it takes a lot of courage to I think it takes courage to even ask that question, but then for someone to have taken the initiative to go out and you know do a little bit of research and then be able to tell you here's what changes they should make or what they would recommend to you. I think that's fantastic. I, I just think that that's a great you know philosophy to use in, in your recruiting strategy. Thanks, Tony. And um, you know, when I was interviewing with JBS, um, doing my research in anticipation of um, is this a place I want to be? Um, I I love our values, our culture, but we have three pillars that make up our leadership philosophy. And uh, the first one is people first. It's all about servant leadership really coaching and developing our people. We're very intentional in our talent management. The second one is being the company of choice, right? You want to be that for your employees. And we do that through a fantastic total rewards um, package. You know, it's not just your benefits and your salary, but really having outstanding working, working conditions in our corporate offices and our plants. It's extremely important for the people who come in every day and do the hard work day in and day out. You know, we have a Better Futures program for um, our employees where um, it's free college tuition. So we, we do that for our employees and their dependents. Um, even our claim to achieve, which we will do and hold our senior leaders accountable for our net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040. So we're the first major meat and poultry company. You know, that's not going to come without its challenges, but it's just the dedication to that and our, um, and our operational excellence. So just really providing the best food um, in the world, you know, not just in the U.S., in the world, but also, you know, in the safest way possible. So making sure that, uh, you know, we feed, we provide more than 206 million daily four-ounce servings of proteins to families around the world. And uh, we want that to be the best food and, uh, this, and the safest food and food safety and keeping our employees safe as well and uh, leveraging our efficiencies in our um, production. So. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things, you know, when you're interviewing or looking for how you want to align yourself with the company, um, definitely things that intrigued me about JBS. And I got questions about too, so I had to answer those myself during the interview process. Yeah, isn't it interesting? You come out of that process and it's, it made such an impact with you, you kind of carry it forward. Well, that's a, you know, a very aggressive goal you have. And you know, by, by 2040, I, I hope you guys can make it because I know that's certainly a, a, a hot topic. We will have another follow-up podcast, but we won't wait till 2040. I, I think we'll do something maybe a little sooner to, to check in. That sounds great. Yes. Definitely. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, thank you so much for, for being here. This was uh, very educational, and um, I hope everyone learned as, as, as much as I did. Thank you so much for your time today, Stephanie. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. I appreciate it.